Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When Saturday Night Live premiered in the 1970s, the cast was known as the Not Ready for Prime Time Players. The popular chef and TV host Alton Brown has been a screen presence for over 20 years, though his new cookbook features recipes that never made it to television, prime time or otherwise. Later this hour, Alton Brown will tell us about Good Eats 4, the final years, which contains the illustrations, history, and science stuff fans love, along with Brown's trademark humor. First, after two years of cancellations, this summer has felt more like a normal season of togetherness at outdoor concerts and festivals. Grant Park's Summer Shade Festival returns tomorrow and Sunday with music, artist street markets, and local food vendors celebrating the historic Atlanta Park and neighborhood. The event is presented by Southern Feed Store and benefits the Grant Park Conservancy. Joining me now via Zoom are the Conservatory Director, Michelle Blackman, Elisa Chambers, the Festival Coordinator, and Josh Irwin of the band Mermaid Motor Lounge. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the annual Summer Shade Festival. Why was it created in Grant Park? Well, Summer Shade Festival started, like you said, 20 years ago as a way for the community to come together in beautiful historic Grant Park to raise money for the then new Grant Park Conservancy to start improving the park and helping to take care of it. And it was twofold. It was a, it was a great way just to get the community together into the park, but also at the same time being raising money so that the Conservancy could grow and start to do the kinds of projects it wanted to do to make the park an even better, more welcoming place for everyone. Michelle, what 
resources and restoration projects has the Conservancy provided the community? Well, we do a whole range of things from really simple things, from just cleaning up litter in the park to really pretty substantial capital improvements. And in fact, we were just recently very honored to have our historic preservation project recognized by the Atlanta Urban Design Commission with an award of excellence. We have just completed really a five-year project to restore two historical fountains in the project, a 1927 millage fountain, uh, which we brought back to life after not having run in decades, probably since the 50s, as well as creating a welcome plaza in front of that fountain. And it's been really lovely to see how people activate that space, especially during COVID. We had a lot of small weddings there, bridal showers, birthday parties. So it's been very lovely to see that all come together. We also completed restoration of the 1896 Erskine Fountain, which has actually been in the park since 1912. And it hadn't run as far as we can tell ever since being in the park. And so we brought that fountain back to life as well as installed a daffodil project garden there, which is a living Holocaust memorial. We planted 2000 daffodil bulbs as part of the daffodil project's goal of planting 1.5 million daffodils throughout the world to honor the 1.5 million children that were killed during the Holocaust. And so that is obviously a very special and moving project for us to be able to put around that beautiful fountain and make it an even more special place for the community. And then finally, we restored the circa 1885 Lion Bridge, one of the oldest structures in Atlanta doesn't run over a stream anymore, but it used to. And we actually created a, a gathering picnic patio between the walls of that bridge. So it's now also another place that people can gather in the shade of Grant Park. So those are some that we're really, really proud of, but lots of things. We try and just make the park as beautiful and welcoming for everyone as we can. Mm. Josh, you've described your band as an alt-space cowboy rock band with fleeting moments that sound a little like a country band. How would you describe the sound of alt-space cowboy rock? <laughs> well, it starts, I think you got to start with the electric guitar having a lot of like fun reverb and, and effects on it to give it some more atmosphere to the to the backdrop of the structure of the song. So I don't know, sort of sounded spacey in that aspect. <laughs> I love the name. What inspired the name of the band? Thank you. Oh, well, I have a history of making bands with way too many syllables. So number one, that checked that box. And number two, it's, it's always been fun to have group texts with friends where you just like, everybody's bored so you make up band names and you just send them throughout the day so it's always been just a fun thing to keep track of and when I decided I was going to start there was enough of a venture with some new music however many years ago to make a band well it was a whole fun thing for myself and I I got a little nerdy with it and I made a whole spreadsheet oh my <laughs> I started goodness. I went down the spreadsheet and it I was trying to pick out the themes that I liked that kind of made me smile the most and mermaids were were top of the list and mermaid motor lounge I don't know the rest of it sort of I didn't necessarily fall directly just out of my mouth, but it kind of did. <laughs> Mermaid Motor Lounge. Great name. Thank you. Now, 
During the pandemic, I saw that you and your band started performing socially distanced shows from a boat. Yes. On land. Yes. Will you tell us more about the boat show? Yes. The boat show started, like you said, in the pandemic, and it was, I mean, everyone that had a band that had shows booked saw them slowly cancel and fall off the calendar. In the beginning, you know, in March and early April, everyone was just scared to go and be around or do anything. But number one, it's hard to quit and play music. And so this seemed like a, a venture enough to kind of get everyone together and then just to try to do something different. And it felt really scary not just being on the boat rolling around, but just actually getting out and wondering if, you know, if it was going to make people upset or what. But anyway, I have a really good neighbor right down the street with a boat that's on a trailer. And then my other next door neighbor is really nice. And he had a generator and I've had this PA and I kind of called everybody together. I'm like, hey, let's go try it out. So we put everything on, had gassed up the generator and cruised around on the streets and we got a really good response. I just gave a quick like notice, like, hey, heads up, we're just going to be cruising by everyone. So if you see us come out and wave. And it really, really made a lot of people really happy. And that was a whole lot of fun to see people walk out the door and smile and be like, what the hell is going on? And, you know, it was enough <laughs> of a shock to be like, this is absurd enough to just kind of forget about everything else that you might be worrying about just for a few minutes. People liked it a whole lot. And then we started getting kind of calls around where it was like, can you come to our neighborhood? Can you come over here? And then it got to be a whole enterprise of selecting the route and figuring out what works. And three point turns of the boat and the trailer is really difficult. And, you know, don't cross, <laughs> don't cross state highways, that, that kind of thing. I can imagine. So at this year's Summer Shade Festival, will you be sailing the streets? Well, you know what? It's really fun to say that we'll be stationary oh. and we're going to be on stage with and we won't be running our own production because they have all the stage and all the sound all set up. So I'm I'm really psyched. The spirit of the boat will be there. And, you know, maybe the boat driver will even show up and some other folks around the neighborhood. <laughs> I love the way the boat driver, not the captain. Oh, yes. No, I'm, I'm the captain. He's the purser. Okay. <laughs> Josh, what are two songs you are especially excited about performing at Summer Shade? Oh, that's a good one. I have a background of string band music and played a whole lot of bluegrass and on the road. And I'm an acoustic guitar player. And I have one song that I've really liked a lot. It's the name of it. I, I believe I've stuck with Whiskey Duck. And there's this great old time song. It's about if the ocean was whiskey and I was a duck, I'd swim to the bottom and never come up. So I kind of altered the lyrics of that and included Mermaid in there. But it's got a fun melody. I've been working on this job way too long. I've been stuck here on this job way too long. And you're on a job too long. Your first plan when things go wrong. Working on a job way too long. So maybe I should go out for the night. I think I might should go out for the night. But if I go Jenna is a fiddle player in our band, and um, I'm playing acoustic guitar, Matt Hendricks on electric, Paul Stevens is playing drums, and Troy Harris is playing bass. And a lot of the times we'll play upright bass, but it translates really well to um, have that old time sound 
and semi-bluegrass sound with the drums going in the background with electric because it has that it kind of gets back to like what the sound of the band sounds like but anyway i'm excited to play that one that's always a fun one to try to pull off at least and we've recorded a new album and we're nearly finished with getting to the point of post-production so maybe a, a song called the average man song is that a newer album than fits and starts Correct. Yes. This one will be the newer one. We have not, it's not been printed or released or anything like that, but we're, the songs, we've been playing them enough in the regular set list, so they'll, they're included now. When I'm coming in for air, sometimes I'll hesitate before I gasp for breath to get my lungs afraid. When I'm headed toward a wall, I'll gently tap on the brakes and take my eyes off the road before the impact takes. the telephone rings, I'll fall all over the place. Turn the whole day The life I'm living just to try to survive won't do much more than get me home alive. If you really think about it, then you'll understand that you're so much more than a savage man. Elisa, who are some of the food vendors at this year's festival? Oh, we've got lots of good ones this year. One we're really excited about is Yom Ice Cream. They have a new ice cream model, sort of like King of Pops, but it's ice cream, little push-up pops. Um, we've got Rapici's Italian Ice. He's a returner. He's been at the festival for many, many years, so we're really happy to have him back. Uh, we've got Dunwoody Cafe. That's the traditional festival food with, you know, funnel cakes and turkey legs and big hot dogs and stuff like that. And then Island Noodles, they're one that has come to the festival consistently for the past several years. And they're a big fan favorite. Everybody loves their big giant skillet that they make their noodles in. But we've got all kinds of stuff, good sweets, good savories. We've got People's Town Coffee and Sweet Chimney Bakery and the Pickle. Everybody loves the pickle. If you've been to any festival in Atlanta, you've probably eaten at the pickle. They're wonderful. So we're really, really excited about all of the food vendors this year. And other musicians besides Mermaid Motor Lounge? Oh, yeah, we've got a great lineup. We've got some younger musicians, younger groups of people that we're excited about. Portmanteau and Das Kaiser. And then we've got our headliners for Saturday, our Calico. They're a really great up-and-coming band kicking off their tour. And Sunday night, we have James Hall and the Steady Wicked. Gamma Star is another one I'm really excited about. They're a young group up-and-coming as well, and they're super fun. And of course, Mermaid Motor Lounge, who everybody loves. Um, yeah, we've got a great lineup, both Saturday and Sunday. Music starts at about noon on Saturday and around one on Sunday, and it goes until 10 o'clock on Saturday night and about 9.30 on Sunday. And what's offered in the kids' zone? Ooh, well, we're very excited about the kids' zone this year because it's being sponsored by Jason Winston and Matt Westmoreland. We've got four bouncy houses a bouncy obstacle course and a bouncy slide and a bouncy house and then a little kid's bouncy house. And then we've got activities throughout the whole day. We've got the Georgia bubble man coming and a balloon animal guy. We've got all kinds of arts and crafts, chalk games, cornhole. We're going to have a cornhole tournament in the afternoon, face painting, hair dye. We've got it all. 
Michelle Blackman, executive director of the Grant Park Conservancy, Elisa Chambers, the Summer Shade Festival coordinator, and Josh Irwin, lead guitarist and vocalist of the band Mermaid Motor Lounge. The Summer Shade Festival in Grant Park is tomorrow and Sunday. More information is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, James Beard and Peabody Award-winning chef and TV host Alton Brown will discuss his latest book, Good Eats for the Final Years. Amplifying Atlanta, this is listener-funded 90.1 WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. For over 20 years, Alton Brown was a staple of the Food Network. He was the host of Good Eats, Iron Chef America, Cutthroat Kitchen, and a slew of other TV series. The James Beard and Peabody Award-winning chef left the Food Network in 2020 and is now hosting the rebooted Iron Chef on Netflix. I spoke with Alton Brown in early May when he was on his book tour for Good Eats for the Final Years. And we'll listen back to that conversation now. Your popular show, Good Eats, stopped production in 2011. And about six years later, you decided to rewatch some of the old episodes. Curious to hear your impressions about those earlier shows and if you'd tell us what happened after that. Well, it had always been my intention to take a few years off and then start making new shows, which we we did with the show Good Eats, The Return. But as I had gone back and started watching some older shows and looking at older recipes, I was like, wow, I would do that differently now. <laughs> you know, a lot has changed in the culinary world. I mean, we all know more than we used to know, but also ingredients have certainly changed. More things are available. People are willing to spend a bit more time. You know, it used to be we had to make everything kind of as easy as possible. And, and I looked at some of those earlier recipes and realized, well, I think people are, 
are probably willing now to spend a little bit more time uh, getting it right. So I decided to do a show called Good Eats Reloaded, where I took old shows and cut myself back into them to make uh, repairs and renovations, uh, which I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the first time anybody's done that. And it was certainly challenging from a technical standpoint to try to weave a new version of yourself into old shows. But, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, well, hard. It's funny to look back on yourself 20 years younger and think, oh my gosh, what a goofball. <laughs> so I kind of had to face uh, that, you know, that version of myself. But it gave me an opportunity to update a lot of food. I do want to say that there was a third season of the reloads in the works. We never got to to make that show because of budget issues, but uh, we did all the recipes. So there's actually a whole nother season of uh, renovated recipes in the in the new book. I have to tell you, Alton, I really admire your candor about getting a lot of things wrong. Not many people would admit that, or they'd spin it differently. How does this book demonstrate your aim to get things right? Well, first, I won't say that I got everything wrong. There were, there were a few things that were just wrong, <laughs> because in the early days when I was trying to make a name for myself, I might have erred on the side of cleverness, which has often been a downfall for me. So not everything, but not everything needed to be repaired. Some things are just like when you've got so many more ingredients available now because of the internet, you could really upgrade things. So I, I just want to say it wasn't that I was all wrong all the time, but I, I do think that you've got to be able to look at whatever your body of work is during your life and update it make it the best that it can be. I know that's not actually answering your question, but I certainly have read of composers, you know, painters that go back into a canvas and strip something down and repair it. I think that we kind of owe it to ourselves, not to mention our our fans, to make sure that whatever is out there is is, as good as we can make it. And that's really tough in this day and age, because once stuff is out there electronically on on the web, it's almost impossible to get back. It's difficult. But I, I think that, that for me personally, it's, it's kind of part of what makes the, the work solid. Hmm. You write that when you proposed Good Eats Reloaded, the president of the Food Network ordered 12 episodes. How did that lead to season one of Good Eats, The Return? Well, I always thought that I would make the return. I, I, that had always been on my to-do list. But then when I decided to do a season of, of uh, reloads first, it definitely affected or, or informed how the new work uh, was done. One of the things that I had always wanted to be able to do was spend a bit more time on historical examination of dishes and anthropology. So that was that was something big that happened there. But the, the really kind of big surprise is that the network then said, well, we'd like to have another season of the reload. So we did a reload, me thinking, oh, okay, that's it. Now I'm just going to make new shows. Then we made a season of the new ones. And then we went back and made another season of the old ones. So what was kind of a challenge for me was to say, ah, well, I've, I've got to really now dig in deep to my old work and say, okay, what, what could I do different? What should I I do different? What would I do different? And that's, you know, that that's a lot of, of work because it requires you to question everything that you've you've done and every decision that you've made. And that that takes some uh, some dark nights of the soul. Oh yeah. And so what we have in this new book is five seasons worth of shows, three reloadeds and two returns. Right. To your point about food history. I got to tell you, my husband, Don, was immediately drawn to your chapter on latkes. 
Whole lot kid love. Whole lot kid love, yeah. <laughs> the history you provide is thorough and fascinating. I'm talking illuminating. I don't imagine there are many cookbooks that reference this Spanish Inquisition, Alton, but you do. I went to four years of Hebrew school, four days a week after regular school, and I don't remember learning what you write about in this chapter, though I wish I had. I think I would have enjoyed it more. And my favorite takeaway here was Sicilian latkes. Leave it to Italians to come up with such a scrumptious solution for a Jewish holiday dish. But would you take us through a bit of the history you provide in this section? Sure. I've come to believe, and, and this isn't just in regards to latkes, but it's also why tomatoes ended up in, in Italy. You, the entire experience or the, what happened culinarily in Europe with the rise of the Spanish Inquisition is that you know, Spain literally got squeezed like a tube of toothpaste, and a lot of toothpaste came out. And the, of course, the, the Jewish diaspora, which is such a, a fascinating history of this, this massive population, you know, moving across North Africa, up across places like Sicily, Sicily was not the only one, into Italy, up into Poland, and, and kind of figuring out all of the changes that, that were made and the foods that moved along because of that course. Is, is really pretty fascinating. And what's so interesting about, at least for me, about that journey of these peoples is that they're incredibly adaptable. So they, they didn't hold hard and fast to any particular tradition. They adapted as they went along. We end up having potato latkes, mostly because potatoes were so gosh darned available later on in Poland, you know, through the, the, the later part of the 17th century and 18th century. And so they adapted all along the way. And of course, there was a strong Jewish population in Sicily and of course, across all of North Africa, which is why we also have things like shakshuka and the ingredients that are there. So I, I am fascinated by the whole European and Eastern European experience that resulted from the cultural movements due to the Spanish Inquisition, which, uh, of course, was in, in one way an incredibly dark time in human history. And, and I think certainly historians of Catholicism would agree with that and Judaism. But the cultural enrichment that came out of it is fascinating, and it makes the tapestry of European cuisine so much more rich and vibrant. And, and I just think that, you know, we, we take a lot of foods not for granted, but we, we might appreciate them, but I think that, that understanding even a little bit of why something got to your plate the way it does or the way that it did can really add a, a whole nother layer of flavor in a way of emotional flavor, of intellectual flavor to a dish. Oh, absolutely. And I was stunned to read that. You're right, that it wasn't until mid-19th century that potatoes became the basis for latkes. That happened because the, the king of Poland at the time uh, was heavily advocating the growth of potatoes, which he had learned about when visiting the French court. There had been a lot of grain failures across Europe in the hundred years leading up to that. And so it looked like potatoes might be a decent way to feed people. Of course, if we, if we carry that story on across to places like Ireland, then there are other consequences that end up then pushing people to the new world and where I'm sitting, New York City right now. So it, it is fascinating. Hmm. Now. For those who may not have seen your shows when they came out, and 
imagine being unfamiliar with the Alton Brown universe. <laughs> Will you explain how you use the term software, tactical hardware, and applications? Well, to me, I call all of my recipes applications. And the reason why is I always want to, to point out that I'm applying the lesson that I'm trying to teach. So the, the recipe exists as an application of what I would call the knowledge base of any show or, or any recipe. Tactical hardware is hardware, uh, meaning kitchen tools that are perhaps out of the normal battery to cuisine, so to speak, that are going to be very necessary for this. So I, I'm not going to sit there on the page and write down every tool that you're going to need. I, I'm going to go under the assumption that if you've spent $40 on my book, you have a spoon. You probably have <laughs> enough. You probably have a pot. So to me, tactical hardware things, I want you to look at this list because these are things that you're going to have to have for this dish. So that's tactical hardware. And software is uh, our ingredients. Uh, software is whatever is going into the dish. That's just kind of how I, I think about them. And, and I think about using words that are uh, a little more descriptive for how I think about food and how I think about cooking. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Alton Brown, the James Beard and Peabody Award-winning chef and host of Good Eats. His recent book is Good Eats for the Final Years. Your shows and this book are paradise for punsters. <laughs> yes, let's start with Stake Your Claim, of course, spelled S-T-E-A-K. You recommend the reverse seer. How did that lead to your recognition that, I'm quoting you, in cooking, technique is what matters most. When I started making shows, Stake Your Claim was the very first Good Eats episode, by the way. Mm -hmm. I was like so many other young culinary people, very focused on ingredients that you had to have this ingredient or you had to have that ingredient. Well, you've got, you can't make a good Southern biscuit without white lily flour because you've got to have this protein content in this. And then over the years, I've come to realize actually technique, the actual way you handle ingredients is in most cases more important than specifics about the ingredient itself. Now the, the reverse sear steak, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, my very first recipe or application for good eats was a, a steak that was seared in a very, 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 very hot pan and then finished in the oven. It makes a really great steak. It also creates vast amounts of smoke, which most people have a really hard time getting rid of. <laughs> I, I get a lot of emails and things about smoke detectors and, and all of this kind of stuff. The, the thing about a reverse sear is that by cooking a steak at a very low temperature over a longer period of time and then searing it before you serve it gives you not only a steak that doesn't need to rest as long, but a steak that also produces a whole lot less smoke. So the, the truth is, is you know, I didn't invent reverse searing. It's, it's something that those of us that tinker with these kinds of things have been talking about, gosh, for at least a decade. Other people have written about it. Other people have tested them as well. So it's, it's kind of become more of an accepted application or accepted technique. But I thought that it was time to go back and give those people who, who were tired of taking out the batteries of their smoke detectors uh, <laughs> another way of making a, a good steak. And, you know, I, I, once I've done something, I keep tinkering with it. I, I never stop tinkering with it. So for me, an application or a recipe is a malleable plastic thing that, that needs constant 
poking and, and changing. Would you give us just a couple more examples about why technique is what matters above all? Let's put it this way. Let's go back to the the biscuit example. I know people that will swear to you, well, you must use this flour. You must use this flour. You've got to use this kind of fat in your biscuits. My argument is, yes, that's that's fine. And that's uh, in some cases backed up by tradition, or it might just be the way you like to work. But how you actually handle those ingredients, how you actually work the fat into the flour, how you bring those ingredients together into a dough matter usually more usually more than the fine print. Now, that doesn't mean that you can take concrete and make it into biscuits where you make something that looks like a biscuit. But, you know, if you're going to get down to, well, you know, this this is bread flour. You can't make biscuits with bread flour. Well, actually, I can make biscuits with bread flour. And I would even argue that if you are a person that takes your, your biscuit batter and you beat the heck out of it and you overfold it and you don't make it wet enough, even if you have the perfect ingredients, my biscuits are going to be better than yours because I know what to feel for. I know what I'm, I'm looking for. I know what the dough needs for me. So this, this move from, from such kind of fetishizing of specifics and ingredients to paying more attention to what your own actions are, I, I think almost universally leads to better food. And it leads to food that allows people more control. I mean, you know, how, how do I feel if I, or how do you feel if let's stick with the biscuits? You know, I really want to make biscuits and I go to the grocery store, but they don't have white lily flour or they don't have soft winter wheat flour. All they've got is all purpose flour. Okay, fine. You've got good technique, buy that flour and make the biscuits, everything's going to be fine. Now, some, you know, biscuit professor might be able to spot a difference, but trust me, they're going to be good biscuits if you know how to bring those ingredients together. Hmm. With a nod to the acclaimed writer, Joseph Conrad, the section Art of Darkness was especially appealing because it's about the wonders of cacao and contains a recipe application for my favorite of all foods, the brownie. Alton, what is the revolution on brownie baking 2.0? I have struggled with brownies. And I think that the reason that I struggle with brownies is because I try to make come up with a brownie that's like everything everybody wants out of a brownie. And the truth is, is everybody wants something different out of a brownie. For instance, me personally, I like brownies that are all kind of cracked and look like a black version of the Bonneville salt flats on top. And I like the <laughs> corners and I like it just chewy as heck and a little bit overcooked. I suspect that's because that was the brownie of my youth. Oh. But I had been kind of really wrestling with getting what I thought was a brownie that gave me everything that it's like, I don't want to eat a brownie that reminds me of a cake, right? I want a brownie that only reminds me of a brownie. The revolution in this particular application, I, I have to give the nod to my, my mother who was making my brownies one day and her dog had to go out. She ended up taking the brownies out of the oven, but instead of throwing them away, when she got back, she just put them back in the oven and she said they were perfect. So I'm like, okay, I got to think about this. What what happened there? And I started experimenting and found that actually the, the texture and to my mind, the flavor of a brownie can be uh, greatly affected by cooking in two stages with the resting stage in the middle. I'm not saying it is the only way to make a brownie, but I have found that for my liking and my taste, it is finally produced a brownie because I must have had at least five brownie recipes as I've tinkered with them over the years. But now I feel that, that I'm done. And, and I, in, the, in the chapter there, I, I do go into what at least I hope is a logical 
explanation of, of why this works the way that it does. And in the, in the show, we actually used uh, uh, some little toy race cars to explain making this thermal trip from being a raw dough to being a finished brownie. I have to point out that the book achieves the zany, wonderful aspects of the TV show you just mentioned, the little car and that part. Again, for people who have never seen the shows, can you describe the many elements that go into spending these moments with Alton Brown, the stickies, the sock puppets, all the goodies? You know, our, our motto has always been laughing brains are more absorbent. Um, in that if you can make people laugh or if you can at least entertain people, they will learn without knowing that they're learning. So to me, you know, like a lot of the weird little skits and the weird little science models are simply to help lead people to some aha moment. And, and it doesn't mean aha. I now understand the exact uh, nature of, you know, uh, starch solubilization or, or whatever. I just want people to go, oh, I see now why that would make a difference. And very often coming up with some kind of visual, funky, and occasionally ridiculous explanation for that really does work. And if it's a puppet, which we use lots of, our yeast puppets have always been very, very popular because once you make a sock puppet fart and burp, everybody loves <laughs> it right uh which is pretty much what yeasts do but to me it's like what, whatever i can come up with visually and that that will involve storytelling you know tv good instruction any good instruction should be storytelling right it is the most effective way to convey information it's why we have greek mythology it is why we have most of the bible it is why we have most of the great early literature so using anything that is a narrative form or a storytelling form is is what will get me where i need to go in a half hour tv show well congratulations on this most ambitious good eats for the final years cookbook. This is Alton Brown's sage advice for those wishing to undertake culinary projects. Never bring a knife to a scissor fight. If you want to learn to cook, start with eggs. Read before you cook. Buy your spices whole whenever you can and grind just before use. Food can sense fear better than a dog. Martinis are food. If cooking isn't fun, you're doing it wrong. Alton Brown. Thank you. It was a, a, a lot of work, but a labor of love. Oh, this has been a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on again. I very much appreciate it. I'm a big fan, as you know. Alton Brown. The James Beard and Peabody Award-winning chef and host of Good Eats. His recent book is Good Eats for the Final Years. Brown is also host of the rebooted Iron Chef on Netflix, and season one is streaming now. Coming up in a moment, Atlanta photographer Cam Kirk discusses his creative community space, Cam Kirk Studios, amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. 
is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When Cam Kirk first picked up a camera as a Morehouse student in 2007, he didn't see many black photographers in the field. So he decided to carve out his own path and create Cam Kirk Studios. He has photographed and produced for many hip-hop and rap artists, from 2 Chains to Gucci Mane. Next Tuesday evening, Cam Kirk Studios is hosting a night school event taught by Blair Caffey, the designer and owner of Honor Roll Clothing. When I spoke with Cam earlier this year, He explained his inspiration for a career in photography. My start in photography came around 2012. That was when I decided to take it serious and to be a full-time creative in that field. Uh, At the time, I was really immersed in the local music scene of Atlanta. I had just finished college. And I just wanted to find a way to, you know, explore my passions and marketing by using a, a camera to kind of carry that out. So in 2012, I was working for a lot of local music artists coming out of Atlanta and just shooting photos for them, directing music videos for them, just overall documenting what was going on in Atlanta. It all started that year. And then from there, to be honest, it's been the easiest thing I've ever tried to do. Oh. Yeah, like everything has just happened so fast and moved so fast. So here I am 10 years later, enjoying the fruits of, of the work and, and the seeds I planted 10 years ago. And I just couldn't be more blessed. Well, I think that says something about your work itself. And those artists you were speaking about, with the likes of Migos, Future, 21 Savage. How did you get your foot in the door with these major musicians? Yeah, it's funny because now when you look back at those names, yeah, you see superstars. But once upon a time, they were just local artists or they were locally trying to get their foot in the door. And I just think I came into photography at the right time where uh, we were like a small knit community of collaborators you know me with the camera and them musically and I just got in the right rooms and everybody is like an arm's length away so I work with one artist which will lead to me working with the next artist which will lead to me being in a room with the next artist and I just was able to kind of stand out in my craft and be you know what many call like a little eye of Atlanta like really Hmm. documenting that cultural scene and then now look back you know we all have been extremely successful and have gained a large uh, notoriety in our craft. So now those names are superstars, but 10 years ago, those names were just like local up and coming talent. So how great to be living in this city, yes, at the time we are. In 2017, you opened a space for Atlanta creatives to hone their skills and learn more about marketing, technology, shooting, and more. Why did you feel it was important to have this space in Atlanta camp? Well, for me, I looked at my needs first. So I still was a young photographer. I was only five years into the craft. 
And I looked at my career and said, wow, even though I've achieved certain levels of success, there's still a lot of resources that I wish I had. I wish I had a space to go practice in studio. I wish I could learn more about lighting. I wish I could learn more about photography in general. And I wish I had a community of support, like a supportive community that would like back some of the ideas I have or just, you know, give me positive inspiration and things of that nature. So it started from looking at my own need and then realizing I'm not alone in that need and wanting that space and just seeing a void in Atlanta's creative scene was a space that just really empowered other young creatives and really a space that kind of let them know that if no one else believes photography or creativity can be a true profession, like we believe that. And so many of our young clients have that similar story of trying to convince their parents that this is a job, this is a real job, and they can do something with it. It was just started from that void that I just felt Atlanta needed. So are there other resources at Cam Kirk Studios? Yeah, we're really an all-inclusive creative space and a community space. So we also have, we call it our creators lab, which is like a computer lab that's filled with high-powered computers with all the apps and programs um, that you need to create. Uh, We have beat making a music production equipment in there. We have podcast mics in there if you wanted to host your podcast. Um, But then beyond just creativity, we're also invested in just like the overall growth of our community, you know, physically and just environmentally. So we do a lot of community work out here as well, where whether that's just cleaning up our neighborhood or we host a annual conference on Martin Luther King's birthday that mm. focuses on business, technology, fashion, arts, and community. Very impressive. Is that your yesterday's tomorrow conference? Yep, takes place every year on Martin Luther King's birthday, uh, the holiday. And it's a community conference that really focuses on some of the pillars Martin Luther King spoke about, which was really like doing the work and not just talking about it, but actually getting in your community and, and finding ways to make it better. So the way that conference works is it's completely free, but it does require you to do community service work in order to gain admission. So uh, leading up to the conference, we host about 10 to 15 community service events And we encourage the community to come out and volunteer with us. And in exchange for volunteering with us, we give back to them by giving them a conference with some of the leaders within the community coming back and giving back their time, knowledge, and energy to mentorship for that special day. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with photographer and studio owner Cam Kirk. Would you tell us about night school? Yes, yes. Night school is one of my favorite projects that we do here at Cam Kirk Studios. It's a free workshop series. So two times a month, we bring in a teacher to actually teach and host a free workshop on different topics within the creative field. So some topics or one month, it could be about photography, lighting, and one session could be about fashion design or designing merchandise or business. So it's a growing series that we've been doing now really for about two to three years. 
But our night school series is really fun. It's a really intimate experience. We only allow 20 students to attend each class, um, which keeps the vibe very intimate and keeps it very easy to grow and learn from. And who teaches the night school courses? One of the courses each month is taught by us, our direct studio staff. And then one of the courses is always taught by what we call a substitute teacher, which is a leader or an influencer or, you know, another successful creative that comes in with the expertise to touch on different subjects. So once a month it's us and once a month it's an outside guest instructor. I'm eager to hear how you came up with the idea for the photography tour slash community cleanup. Yeah, so in our community where our studio was located, I was just walking to work constantly and noticing, one, just a lack of of trash cans, which was our first issue. There literally wasn't a lot of places to just throw away garbage if you had it. If you were getting out of your car and you had a cup or a bottle of water, um, it seemed like there was a, a little bit of a disparity with just waste containers in our community. Would you tell us which community, which neighborhood that is? Yeah, we're located downtown Atlanta. We're on Forsyth Street, between Forsyth Street and Ted Turner, like right in that intersection area. And yeah, I I just noticed there was a disparity there. We reached out to the city uh, of Atlanta. They actually told us, yeah, it is. And they marked a bunch of areas where trash cans were needed. But in turn, they also gave me an invoice or a bill and said, If you think you need trash cans here, you got to pay for it. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, which was a little alarming to me. It was really alarming. So that really just motivated me even more to just take ownership in this neighborhood. So me, along with my partners at Sprite and Coca-Cola, we actually invested $25,000 to buy trash cans and recycling bins in our neighborhood. So if you're at our studio, if you're ever in the area and you notice these black and blue dual receptacles, you know, they were all paid for by our studio and by Sprite as a partnership to, you know, attack that problem. So within that, that mission, we take it upon ourselves, you know, when the weather is nice once a month to gather the community together and to go out and still pick up and collect more trash off the streets and off the ground. And everything we do is always community service with a creative twist to it, a creative spin. So for our community cleanups, we also add photography in it. So along our walk, we usually walk like a mile radius. And along our walk, we have photographers come out and they photograph like buildings or street art or restaurants or businesses along the path. And we, we created like a little contest where the top photos from each walk, they get free studio time. So just another incentive to get young people excited about taking pride in their neighborhood and their community. We collect hundreds of pounds of trash, which is also alarming on this path. But it's been fun. We're trying to find a way to make, you know, cleaning up and taking care of your community fun and also finding ways to you know, take ownership and responsibility for our communities and putting the ball back in our hands because like I learned the hard way, they're expecting us to pay for everything and to do everything. So you kind of got to do it. 
I'm still trying to process that. In the heart of downtown Atlanta, we're talking about Central City. You were told you'd have to pay for trash bins. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a head scratcher for me, too. I didn't understand that that's how it went. Cam, I read that in 2020, you established a record label for photographers called the Collective Gallery. Yes. Why is it important to you to teach and help others grow in their own craft? Yeah, I think it's about sustainability. As, as you mentioned in, my, in your intro of me, I didn't see a lot of like-minded individuals like me in the field that I was in prior to me doing it. So I just wanted to create something and every step of, of my journey, I wanted to basically not only just do it for myself, but I wanted to find a way to make sure I brought other people in the door. When I started Collective Gallery, it was because I had been a photographer handling my own business, managing myself with a small knit team for so long. And I, I wish I had a team behind me or resources or an agency of some sorts. So I started Collective Gallery because I needed it, but then I also noticed that other people needed it as well. Cam Kirk is an Atlanta photographer and owner of Cam Kirk Studios. Their next night school event will be taught by substitute teacher Blair Caffey, the designer and owner of Honor Roll Clothing. He'll talk about developing and managing his own clothing brand on Tuesday, August 30th at 7 p.m. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll hear from WABE music contributor Scott Stewart and what's happening in the exciting world of video game music. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website wabe.org slash citylights Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band courtesy of Hot Shoe Records I'm your host Lois Reitzes Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.